is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason and the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I am your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt, director of Tayu Meditation Center and co-founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we present a conversation pre-recorded on August 3rd, 2019 with Zeke Badger, a longtime fourth-way practitioner, a writer, blogger, and founding member of the Seekers Cafe, and a career educator whose work focuses upon developing and implementing nature-based educational experiences that inspire and challenge individuals towards personal health and a healthy relationship with the natural world through the use of adventure education, long-distance walking adventures, and rite-of-passage endeavors. Zeke owns and operates a small, family-run business offering herbal products. He was an adjunct faculty member for the University System of New Hampshire, teaching courses in environmental ethics, natural history of northern New England, and outdoor skills. Zeke has 30 years of class teaching experience developing and implementing outdoor programs and environmental education experiences for adolescents at the secondary school level. He is currently working on two books, Going Wild, Commentaries upon Thoreau's Walden, Walking, and Youth's Adventure, and Long Walking as a Rite of Passage. Zeke, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Nice to be here. Thank you. Well, thanks for ha- um, uh, being willing to do this. Uh, we always begin with a, uh, our first uh, discussion with uh, a first-time guest with a question and invitation that you cast your mind back into your, to your youth and childhood and ask yourself, were there any experiences that I could now see prefigured the direction that my spiritual trajectory would take later in life. Yeah. And I think, uh, I would have to say yes to that. And I think very early on, it was a combination of, well, I was brought up in the suburbs of Boston. And so I had a very, uh, in an Irish Catholic uh, you know, parochial school setting. Mm-hmm. And we could go into a whole lot of, you know, conversation about that influence. But I think it, it brought alive a sense of the sacred early on. Hmm. Uh, aside from all of the other, you know, dogma and Catholicism kind of stuff, as I've sat back over the years and, and contemplated what were some of the earliest influences, I think it was really that kind of setting, being in the presence of a community where reverence pulsated uh, and, and was very much alive as an experience. Oh, that's, that's, that's very interesting. Intellectually, not anything that I pondered at that time, but certainly that, uh, uh, that question of reverence uh, was uh, key, I think, in early development. And then the second was just uh, for whatever reason, my early interest in uh, nature and the out of doors. 
And I think those two uh, key ingredients were what uh, led eventually to this, you know, search that I have been on since you know, a number of years now. Thank you. Well, uh, 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 let's let's focus in turn on each of those um, uh, elements. Uh, I also had a, a Roman Catholic parochial background, and I'm wondering about specific moments where this expression of reverence particularly touched you. Uh, if there's a if there's a specific moment, or 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 maybe a moment when you uh, in childhood, where it, when it you could sort of abstractly realize what that might what that word might point to as a as an actual experience as opposed to just an idea. Well, I think the experience lived quite constantly as growing up. So, from an emotional uh, perspective, at that deeper level of intelligence, I think the rituals. Uh, were key. So being in, uh, you know, Boston, being an altar boy, being involved with some of the rituals of the Catholic Church, I'll always remember the moments when physically and emotionally I was touched by something higher than myself. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't intellectualize it or, you know, speak to it at that time, but I quite well remember the acute sense of this uh, reverence and spiritual uh, reality that was being manifested and played out in front of me through the church, uh, some of the high masses. I remember quite early being on uh, the altar where there were some very high Catholic masses that involved uh, Cardinal Cushing, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, the parish that I was in at Sacred Heart in Newton was, uh, they called it the Church of the Bishops. So there was a lot of pomp and circumstance. And I think, you know, the incense and the, the, the vestments and, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the, the mass itself was, uh, brought that quite alive. And I think then being in a parochial school from, uh, K through 12, uh, being in a small Irish Catholic parish where I went, from kindergarten right up to grade 12. Uh, you know, I quite remember walking down the hallways in the school when I was young, and you always had to, when you passed before the, the statue of Mother Mary, you had to genuflect. Mm -hmm. And there could be nobody in the hallways that you would be walking down there, but they would, you would hear that call, and, and it was quite, you know, tactile. Uh, that that emotional uh, physical presence of devotion to something higher and uh, that lived for a number of years and then of course being in the 60s living through the whole uh, change that was going on in the Catholic Church Vatican II all of the kind of changes that were happening in the mass and the rituals but also what was happening within the you know the uh, with the nuns and the the priests People were leaving, you know, the flocks, the nuns were changing their habit. It was quite a, uh, it was quite a, a time to then think about cerebrally, contemplate what all of that meant. And I think that was simultaneous in my high school years 
that kind of falling out and that kind of uh, revolutionary uh, kind of movement that was happening coincided with uh, my discovery in high school with Henry David Thoreau. Hmm. And uh, so it seemed like a perfect storm between that, uh, you know, those early influences and the love of nature and then all of those changes that were happening in those in the 60s, late 50s, 60s. Uh, and then the discovery of Henry David Thoreau just it kind of sealed my fate, I think, for uh, forever. So, so you spoke about the um, thread of being uh, re- relating to the outdoors. Did was Thoreau a catalyst of that, or was Thoreau more an expression of something that was already building for you? The, the latter. Uh, I think you know, growing up when I, uh, you know, Joseph Campbell speaks quite eloquently, for instance, to the role that heroes uh, play in our lives. And, you know, we all have heroes. And I think in early on, my heroes were, you know, undoubtedly Daniel Boone was, uh, Hmm. you know, front front and center. And just that whole image of the pioneer going out and encountering raw nature and, you know, Indians and the wild animals that lived out there. Uh, those were my heroes, those explorers. And uh, so then later, with that love of nature, that just seemed to, uh, you know, crop up naturally, uh, running into Henry David Thoreau, then, uh, you know, his whole philosophy and his, you know, I've been a student of Thoreau since then. Hmm. Got it. Um, so I'm wondering about this, um, how the reverence, that you found in ritual um, and um, or I guess I, to, to put it another way, uh, was there a reverence in nature as well as being drawn to um, uh, the natural world? There was definitely a reverence for it. And, uh, and I think that was always there. Uh, you know, I would, there was always something alive and vibrant and I don't think I, back then would have referred to it as a sense of reverence, but it was certainly a sense of the magical uh, that existed in the natural world. And I think as Rachel Carson, you know, she was once asked, I think if she could do anything, you know, if she could invoke the good fairies to come down and wave their wand over us and, and what gift would she give uh, that would, you know, to everybody that would help change this, environmental dilemma that we face ourselves in her question her answer was uh, a sense of wonder Mm -hmm. we'd have the the fairies wave that uh, wand over us and uh, something that we lose I think too quickly today but that sense of wonder was always there or the magic uh, in the natural world got it well so um you've you're you're painting a picture of of a certain a uh, set of influences um, that were developing uh, into and through your your teenage years through high, through the end of high school it sounds like yeah um, you know I don't know if culminating is the right word um, with Thoreau and and appreciation of, of his work but what was the the next step what was the trajectory after that well I think in the 60s of course it was a really uh, as you probably remember as well, very turbulent time and, and questions of authority 
and Thoreau just, uh, you know, resonated uh, quite readily there. But for me, it was questioning my faith. Uh, I, I turned away from Catholicism. Uh, you know, I'm not a practicing Catholic uh, at all, but I, I have a deep sense of spirituality. And just that fervor of the 60s and, and questioning authority. So there was the questioning of the authority of the church. There was the questioning of the authority of the establishment. There was the, you know, Vietnam War going on. And that kind of radical spirit coincided with, you know, that, that stage in my own or anybody's life when you're, you're most open to, you know, the radical kind of, uh, uh, questions there so that together you know I did what everybody else did at that time upon graduating from high school you went into college because at the time the only thing that was mostly that was going to keep you out of Vietnam and a rice paddy was to be in college so I decided to go to college just as a matter of uh, that's what everybody did but I happened to be, uh, so I went the first year that I was in college, uh, you know, like any good Catholic uh, boy or girl who was leaving, you know, home. It wasn't the educational experience there. It was, you know, the sex and drugs and rock and roll kind of uh, yeah. environment that really opened you up to. It's like, you know, this is a different kind of uh, party that's going on. But I was in that 18-year-old group that lost out on school deferment. So all of a sudden, it wasn't possible to keep yourself out of Vietnam or out of the service by being in college. They were calling you up uh, regardless. So I was in that group that lost out, and I I got my pre-induction notice. They were going to uh, mm -hmm. uh, call me in, and I had to think long and hard about that from a you know radical point of view. How was I going to deal with this question that was coming at me from life? I didn't believe in the Vietnam War. It was a political war. Uh, I had a real radical streak of, you know, just as Thoreau, uh, I was in some ways ready to spend a night in jail uh, because of my convictions. But the outlets at that point were going a conscientious objector, which uh, I didn't, I decided not to do uh, because I wasn't so much a conscientious objector to. Uh, warfare, because there are certainly times where, you know, you could look at history and you could say that, you know, opposing somebody like Hitler uh, was a necessity. But it was the political nature of the war and the money making off of it that appalled me. But I didn't want to be a conscientious objector. I had a lot of family members who were in the military and they were good people. And uh, uh, or I could... <clears throat> At that time, there were two things that you could declare at the end of your pre-induction physical. You could say you were either gay, you could say you were a homosexual, and at that time, if you were homosexual, they wouldn't let you into the military, or you could say that you were uh, a drug addict, and they called it Big Charlie and Little Charlie at the time, and I, I didn't <laughs> decide to, to do any of that or go to Canada, so I actually decided that I, I would enlist in the military because they didn't have an objection against serving something higher. Uh, 
and for a good cause, but I figured I would enlist in something that would at least keep me out of Vietnam. So I was really three days away from enlisting in the Navy, and I had dropped out of school. Uh, and then Richard Nixon, the only thing I think I can ever uh, be thankful to him for was the fact that he ended the draft three days before I went down and said I do. Wow. Uh, and at that point, I was out of college, which I never really understood why I was there. And, uh, and it was at that point that I started to travel. And for the next eight years, I lived out of a backpack and mm. uh, tr traveled a good portion of the world. Ah, so what, um, what aspects of the world were you interested in exploring in particular? Or, or, or was that entirely eclectic at first? And did you settle on a, a, a set of places to explore? How did that work? Uh, I think it just, you know, there was that question of not just wanderlust, but the idea of having some kind of ritual experience that took me into the next stage of my life's journey was it resonated, uh, you know, loudly for a few years, ever since mm -hmm. late high school. I remember reading, uh, I think it was uh, Richard Halliburton's Royal Road to Romance. And I think it was back in the 40s, and he was talking about being in, uh, I think it was Yale University. I'd have to go back and check it. But he just realized that all of this was just nonsense. He was just going through the motions. And he threw the books in the corner, and he took off, and he wandered the, you know, the world mm -hmm. and became quite a celebrated writer in the 40s, you know, uh, with that kind of armchair adventure for many people being what uh, – uh, led to the whole literary success of his uh, stuff there. But that kind of spirit lived in me, and I just wanted the same thing. So I just really took off and uh, started traveling. And at first, it was around this country and being influenced simultaneously with some of the other stuff that was out there during those days with uh, the Beat Generation, mm -hmm. uh, On the Road, the Dahmer Bums, uh, all of that kind of those those stories entered in. So I spent a good bit of time uh, hitchhiking and just beating around, you know, the United States, uh, exploring what life was all about. You know, here I recognized that for you know a number of years, 18 years, you know, I've been in this nice little cocoon, but I really didn't know a damn thing about uh, life. So I wanted to go out and just drink deeply from what life had to offer. And uh, that was that was really the, uh, the intent of, of traveling. Are there any uh, um, particular experiences that, uh, that really made, uh, made an impact on how, you, um, how, how your view of life, as you're learning about it in the way that you're describing, um, actually uh, resonated and uh, continue to resonate? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I spent a good number of years traveling some of the, the, what I call the wilderness strongholds of North America, mm -hmm. National Park, walked the Appalachian Trail, uh, and really got into the foot travel. So having a backpack on my back and walking, uh, almost became addictive. And, off and on between North America 
I, I first went to Europe after beating around this country for, for a while, just uh, with no more than, you know, a couple pennies in my pocket, you know, going to flop houses and, uh, you know, just really uh, aimlessly kind of wandering around trying to experience what life was like. Uh, I at one point then said, I, like Richard Halliburton, I wanted to go overseas. So there was the mystery and the magic of another culture. And uh, I went over to Europe. Uh, I remember starting off in Germany. Uh, and I felt embarrassed because I would meet numbers of people who knew a great deal about their country, their landscape, and uh, various places that uh, they could speak to about their identity and their uh, their homes, and when they asked me about the United States, I felt I felt somehow diminished by the fact that I couldn't speak to my own home country, and I didn't know anything. People, for instance, I remember when they asked me what was the Grand Canyon like. Here's something of the natural world that's just a wonder, and I, I truthfully said, "I well, I've never been there. I don't know." Mm-hmm. Uh, so I came back and did, you know, I traveled around North America, but I, and then going back to Europe the second time, uh, I'd say one of the most profound experiences that I had was on the island of Crete. Hmm. Had made it down there and walked, you know, most people would say along the coastline, but I remember walking up over what was called the White Mountain. So the, the mountain range that ran right down the hole or the length of the, uh, the island of Crete. And this was a country, part of the country, you know, where there, you didn't see any automobiles. You saw people on, with donkey carts and uh, small villages that you would pass through. And I couldn't speak any Greek and I, I couldn't speak any German, which was also widely spoken on the island because of, uh, you know, World War II and the occupation. But I'll never forget traveling through some of these little villages and when people would see me walk by, uh, they would come out and they would call me over, uh, you know, for water. They were, I remember one day in particular, a woman coming out and saying, Nero, 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 and just realizing that she was offering water. And I was with a few other people, two other guys who were walking uh, as well with me, and we all went over. And the woman was so happy to see us, she, you know, she brought out her best. Uh, she brought out liqueurs, she brought out uh, tea, and she put all these things on the table, and then she ran out of the house. And I remember we were sitting there thinking, God, this, is, this would never happen in our country. Uh, but about five minutes later, half of the village must have come back into her house and just mm-hmm. almost like to honor us, that we were guests passing through, and they were passing us cigarettes, they were they were literally giving us the very best that they had uh, because there was some value in being the guest uh, in their household. And I think that touched me profoundly uh, as something, you know, that I never saw in our country. Uh, you know, today you hardly ever see that if you saw a stranger walking down the street to go out and invite him in and sit him down at the table and then run out you know, to, to collect all your neighbors uh, to come back and give honor to this person was uh, a totally different uh, experience for me. So I think there were those kinds of 
welcomings and openings from other cultures that just cemented in my mind that the world was very different from what I had been taught uh, to believe it was like. So really, again, that revolutionary kind of or radical spirit, uh, everything that my, as Thoreau would say, you know, his elders taught him or tried to teach him was, you know, worthless. That's interesting. So, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, so just that kind of uh, recognition that, you know, what I was reading in the news and hearing on the, the newscast or what uh, people were telling me wasn't really the whole story. And if I really wanted the whole story, I had to go much deeper. I had to push myself a little bit more uh, to really confront and embrace other people because I had been embraced in a way that just touched me in a, in a quite profound way. I, I really love that story, um, uh, partly because the, what you experienced was so unexpected, but also because it um, resonates with my own spiritual training, which is that the roles, the respective roles, <clears throat> excuse me, of guest and host are so uh, crucial to, um, to human relations, or they can be, at least. Right, and they're... They're roles that both require things of us and appropriate yeah. appropriateness of us. And, and it's funny how, uh, as you say, in this, in this society, it's uh, an American society, that understanding isn't so clearly communicated. It's not that it doesn't exist in places, but it's not, right. it's not really a shared understanding. And a lot of times people don't want to be guests partly because they don't want to owe. Right. Yeah. For years, I remember, uh, you know, so that kind of being open to other cultures and other people, uh, I think those were early influences that shaped much of, you know, combined with that sense of reverence that I grew up with uh, and then that connection to the world of, of great nature. Uh, it really put me on a track, I feel, for uh being open uh but as you say Stuart, it was like there's this question of reciprocity that really the bigger story is out here is and gurjeev would say himself later when i came to you know when you take take uh but you know take till it hurts but then uh, on the other end you know when it's time to give you got to give till it hurts yeah and uh that's not always easy to do so how did uh so from this point of view, then, that you had a phase of uh, eight years of travel, is there another phase or, or, or how did the, uh, let's say, the tentacles of the uh, Gurdjieff work ultimately find you? I think, uh, you know, there was that spirituality that lived from day one, just, you know, was inculcated through my upbringing. And then, you know, the Catholic Church, the formal part of it, uh, you know, it lost its luster. I remember quite specifically the disappearance of it was when uh, I, I stood in the Vatican treasury room <laughs> and, and, and just realized with all of the <clears throat> rhetoric that I had grown up hearing, uh, you know, in that uh, Catholic uh, upbringing, 
in the presence of this, the, these treasuries, I, I was thinking, and the question I remember I had at the time is like, well, this could lift the nation of poor people up off of its feet. Why are you holding this? And I'll never forget a priest saying, well, it's because uh, it's important because it gives people uh, a sense of it represents the richness of what's possible in the, in the <laughs> afterlife. And, and it was in that moment where, you know, my Catholicism went out the window, but my spirituality remained. And uh, the questions were still there, uh, you know, also in the 70s, late 60s, other kinds of spiritual disciplines were, you know, growing and, and manifesting in the United States. And for me, uh, the first really other spiritual teacher that I uh, tacked onto was uh, uh, Krishnamurti. Mm-hmm. And uh, he resonated quite well with that kind of radical spirit that I had had. Uh, anyways, so Krishnamurti became a really uh, an important teacher to read his, uh, you know, all of his works. And then it was really through an interest in uh, Krishnamurti and then some of the friends that I had uh, back on the East Coast here eventually you know, there were these conversations about uh, Gurdjieff. I remember going up and the, the person who introduced me to the work was, uh, his name was Mike Glick. And uh, he was a dentist, a dentist friend uh, that I had come to know because there were times when I'd come home from traveling and I'd stop in for a month or two and, uh, you know, see my dad and uh, need some dental work. So I'd go up he was the local dentist who had come up from uh, New York and uh, settled in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. So I met him and then I, you know, because I would always work things off wherever I would go, I'd try and see if I could barter with people. So I decided, well, he was open to uh, bartering dental work for, you know, physical labor on the farm that he was building up in the middle of the Ossipi Mountains. And I'd work up there for him and then I'd sit around and he had some other friends who would come up and they would do readings of Nicole and I'd always wonder well who is this Gurdjieff fellow and uh, it's kind of an interesting story for me because I always remember sitting on some feeling somewhat on the outside of the conversation but knowing that 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 names rung a bell or struck some kind of a deep chord and it wasn't until later I remember having my dental work done and then I departed for Europe uh, once again and uh, eventually I remember being in a bookstore in Athens, Greece, and I was looking for a good book. And usually, you know, if you're traveling, it's always great to have a book with you. And the bigger the book, the better. So uh, James Michener's books were always fantastic. They were thick, you know, 800,000 pages. So it was a good buy. I remember going into an Athens bookstore looking for uh, The Drifters. His, his book on, called The Drifters. And uh, what popped up in my hand just kind of, you know, was in search of the miraculous. And mm. I remember picking it up and seeing Gurdjieff's name on it. And I knew I had to take that book. The thought of, you know, searching any further for James Michener's uh, book on the drifters uh, drifted away. And uh, I remember then going off uh, to uh, Israel and I was working at a youth hostel <clears throat> in a place called Angedi, 
It was right on the uh, shore of the Dead Sea, just about 10 miles up from Masada. And uh, it was that, at that time, it was during the Camp David Peace Accord. So the, the tensions between Israel and Egypt were quite high at that point as to what might happen in the Middle East. But uh, I was just focused on reading this book and devouring it. And I would work in the mornings. I'd have to clean up the hostel. And then I would go out into the Judean desert and find a place where I could sit and read in search of miraculous. So uh, that was after about eight years. And at that point, I realized that outwardly my travels had ended. It still took me about four months to work my way back home. Uh, but it was really at that point, you know, having all of these other experiences and Krishnamurti and, and throw and uh, the travel and the richness of being opened up to the world, this book really opened me up to the world of the inner life. And, uh, and I came back and I, you know, found my friend, Mike Glick, and he, uh, he had his teacher and that happened to be Keith Buzzle. Mm. So that was back in about 1978. And I came back with the intent of, uh, you know, entering into to that group, which eventually I did. And where was that group located? Uh, Keith Buzzle's group was up in, uh, you know, Stowe, Maine. It was up in, you know, Keith was a, uh, you know, general physician in the Freiburg, uh, Stowe area. One of the few doctors who at that time still made house calls. Hmm. Uh, but it was right up in the middle on the edge of the eastern side of the White Mountain National Forest, deep in the woods. And, uh, you know, group meetings were, it took a while. I remember, you know, we had to bug the heck out of Keith to, uh, you know, finally get an interview with him. But eventually he, uh, uh, he said, come on in. And, uh, Mike told me that I was accepted. I could come start coming to a meeting because I wanted to know mainly what I had read what kind of, uh, you know, familiarity I had with some of the work literature. But that led to my uh, uh, involvement with uh, Keith's group right up until uh, the time he died a year ago. So before we get into a little bit more about that, I'm, I'm interested as, a, as someone coming into the work uh, and having read In Search of the Miraculous, but also having this uh, background with Krishnamurti, how did how do you sort of understand the uh, um, the different flavors and what did you find in the uh, uh, Gurdjieff work that resonated so deeply that, for instance, you didn't necessarily find in the same level with the uh, Krishnamurti I mean, work? Yeah, I mean, you didn't go to Ojai, right? Yeah. So. No, no, I didn't. <laughs> uh, I think what and it may have been this sense of, sense of ritual. Hmm. Uh, that okay. might have come back in and played, uh, I think, a, a role in it. But, you know, there's not a whole lot of ritual in the Gurdjieff work. But there is in the sense of group meetings and group conversations. At the time, we had a cabin down in the woods. And, uh, you know, every Friday night we would meet there. And sometimes those meetings would go on until 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, sometimes, you know, even later. But I think it was just that ritual early on. It was also the, I think, the movement. Uh, but it was also just the clarity around method while simultaneously hearing that, you know, trust nothing 
that I tell you. So what came across loudly for me with Krishnamurti was that you don't need a guru, mm -hmm. uh, in a sense. And here was, you know, Gurdjieff, you know, and many people, you know, Gurdjieff would become their guru, but Gurdjieff would go to great lengths to, once people became that dependent upon him, he would drive them away. But his, uh, you know, his advice was to question everything, especially whatever I'm telling you. You have to yeah. go on that search for yourself. So I kind of like that. Uh, and the fact that it was available at the time here was a group that was not too far away from where, you know, my home in, in the States was up in the yeah. future. So it seems uh, quite fitting to, uh, and then of course it, it was, once I got deeper and deeper into it, the practical nature of it was just, uh, uh, was quite uh, clear. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm reflecting on your comments about the sense of the sacred and the sense of the higher, you know, opening yourself to something higher. That theme definitely resonates in the Gurdjieff work. I don't see that in the same way in the Krishnamurti work. I mean, in, 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 with Krishnamurti, there, there's a notion of that, or there's a notion of naturalness, but there's also an, a, uh, a primary focus on uh, uh, distancing oneself or, or letting go of interpretations and um, ideas we have about things and just being present to what's coming in. But there isn't the same kind of articulation about an affirmative force in the heart that I see in the Gurdjieff work. Is that right. kind of track with your experience? It does. And I think, you know, Christomurity is, you know, it's interesting that he broke with the Theosophical Society when Annie Besant and uh, Ledbetter and those folks uh, decided uh, to DFI him. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, he just <clears throat> dissolved that order of the star. I think it was that he yeah. was, uh, you know, being groomed to be the world leader. So, that resonated well and you know it was also simultaneous to the time when rudolf steiner uh likewise broke off from the theosophical society and then founded the anthroposophical uh, community which i tapped into later in terms of my teaching uh, and my mm. professional career but yeah there was no it was all of the attention it was all mental and i really have always valued that that incredible crystal clear clarity that Krishnamurti would bring to yeah. this question of attention, but it, it really locked that, uh, that heart uh, capacity that you just mentioned to it. Well, I want to, I want to follow up on uh, uh, this um, resonance that you felt for the Gurdjieff community. And, and you, you mentioned this, um, this feature of, of seeking the higher or, or um, looking for the higher. And I'm assuming that that is resonant with your experience, the experience you described as a child um, with Catholicism. And of course, Gurdjieff famously described what he was doing at times as esoteric Christianity. Right. So, so, so there's that resonance, but there's also then the question of, what was the difference and what does the word esoteric help explain some of the differences 
as well as the similarities that you found between these two sets of experiences? Good question. Uh, I think uh, when I came back uh, from Israel there, when I discovered uh, in search and then came back and became part of Keith's group, what early on impressed me and uh, resonated was the whole exploration of uh, law and mm -hmm. I remember spending a lot of time. I, I was at that time working in a uh, a lumber mill, and uh, you know that's how I kept myself uh, going uh, physically. But I was reading everything I could. You know, the group meetings, all of the explorations of, uh, of questions outside of that. I remember, you know, I was reading. Uh, we were looking into astronomy, we were looking into anatomy and physiology. We were looking into all of these scientific kinds of uh, questions from a work perspective. And that just, and that's been, I think, a hallmark of Keith Buzzle's work, just that exploration of the laws. Uh, but it was that, uh, that application of scientific rigorousness, rigorousness that I think impressed me in respect to the inner world that whatever we, you know, would, however we would search through this outer world with that same kind of an integrity, that same kind of uh, scientific method, the application of that into this inner world and recognizing that this exploration of the inner world was really going into the realm of the sacred. And there was, you know, the reverence that was uh, felt in those halls of spiritual, uh, you know, work, whether it was the Catholic church or in the world of great nature. Uh, it was also just the recognition that that same kind of reverence and respect and a wish to understand because coupled to that reverence and that wonder was then, okay, I, I have to, that kind of radical nature of like, well, I can't just accept that as truth. I have to really plumb the depth and I have to explore these questions rigorously. Uh, that, really kind of for me you know cemented all of those questions together and the Gurdjieff work I think that was one of the hallmarks uh, that if you want to call it the methodology or just some of the work uh, you know notions that came up whether it was the you know the food factory or Bennett's exploration of the laws these just really resonated well and that same kind of reverence for exploring my inner world while simultaneously holding Gurdjieff's question that, you know, when he gets to the end of Beelzebub's tales, you know, to see in every single person that at some point, you know, you know, we are going to die and to, to recognize the same reverence for the inner world of this other person. Uh, that was, you know, the uh, huge turning point where for me it was just, here's my work for, you know, my life. Here's my is the teaching that I would follow. Well, it's interesting that you that you are configuring esotericism as actually um, 
being intimately a manifestation of connection. That is to yeah. say, you know, um, resonating with the inner life of other people at the same time. I'm not sure that the, everyone would would configure it that way. I'm wondering if the if if the sense of the reverence of nature that you uh, that was important from you from a young age helped create that connection for you helped helped you helped you uh, look in that direction absolutely uh, I think that reverence uh, for for place <clears throat> if you want to call it the outer world of great nature uh, I think there's a whole concept in education that's come up since the 90s that was uh, uh, I think it was co coined by uh, uh, two teachers, one John Elder up in Vermont, and the other one was David Sobel at Antioch University. It was called the uh, a sense of place, hmm. uh, or what's come to be known as place-based education. Uh, it's nothing new, of course, because you know Native American indigenous cultures have always known that this incredible sense of place and the cultivation of the the lawfulness and the reciprocity of being in place. And part of Thoreau's message as well at Walden Pond is kind of a rite of passage, transformational experience that coupled with that sense of cultivating that sense of place and coming into recognizing what our role is there, simultaneously one cultivates a sense of self. So sense of place, is coupled to this sense of self and very much in the Thoreauian way as he explored more into the laws and the workings of nature he wound up re realizing that it was not only understanding his place but it was also a portal into his own soul mm. and uh, one reflected the other so I do think that that uh the the merging of that sacredness of the land from if you will like a Native American uh, or an Aboriginal indigenous uh, concept, which is uh, one that's rare in Western society today. We don't have that kind of an indigenous uh, concept and reverence for a place. Uh, but I think it leads to a, a different sense of oneself because it brings us into relationship. Once you explore all of the laws and the interconnections of those uh, places and, uh, and how you relate to it, you know, you really see we're connected to everyone and everything. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll just I'll just um, interject here briefly that uh, I was struck by um, your description of of finding your place on your inner own inner journey, uh, reading in search of the miraculous in the Judean desert. I mean, if there's any, <laughs> yeah. if you want some resonance with esoteric Christianity, that yeah. that that could be a, a starting point, right? Or a there. sense of place. But yeah, I, you know, it, these two themes, I think I, I, I appreciate about the Gurdjieff work and the way you're describing it are the idea of applying a, a method of inquiry, a scientific method of inquiry to that which is within, which uh, is where the, for me, the name of the, the show, The Mystical Positivist, comes from. Uh, which is, ah. is pr precisely that it's positive uh, positivism which is a sort of a methodical uh method of inquiry 
turn to the mystical. But the, the other piece that's interesting to me is that the sense of the sacred and the sense of this and, and relating to other are aspects of the Gurdjieff work that uh, aren't pop popularly well understood. Typically, when Gurdjieff comes up, they see this bombastic master who was really ruthless with people. And uh, often I've even heard uh, the fourth way described as the path without heart. And all of that is sort of a surface noise because what you're describing is something that is actually profoundly affirming to the heart. And yes. if, if anything, a way of affirming the heart that doesn't come up in the quite in the same way in uh, other traditions. And I'm just interested that, you know, if, if, if you found that in your own work, that there was a, there's a, a unique voice there and a, uh, a unique access to the sacred and the heart that in the Gurdjieff work, which certainly is not popularly understood. People in the work, I think, understand it. But I, I was wondering if you could speak about that a little bit. Yeah, I think, you know, it was one of the questions that I think turned Dispensky away from Gurdjieff towards the end when he when he realized that there was more of the way of the monk, if you will, in, in the, the path or the trajectory that his work was taking. Uh, and I've, I've over the years, I've heard the same that it, you know, the Gurdjieff work, one, the book Beelzebub's Tales is, you know, impenetrable. It's just, you know, impossible for people to understand. And then all of the stories that come up about, uh, you know, just uh, his womanizing, his uh, ruthlessly, I mean, there's all sorts of, you know, crazy kinds of uh, stories out there about how ruthless he could be. But I think, you know, he broke people's dependency upon him because it wasn't about him. Uh, people had to do the work uh, themselves. And... I think anything that I've explored with the work, uh, you know, we can, you know, he made it hard, I think, because you've really got to do the walk yourself. You can't just walk the talk. You have to really go on that journey. And uh, many people, I think, become quite comfortable with accepting what's, you know, something to believe or how to behave. And I don't think the times are a calling for that kind of acceptance anymore. I think there has to be that real, uh, you know, deeper kind of manifestation of what it means to be, uh, you know, connected to other people. But I think his, his methodology, uh, more than anything I've ever come across with the teaching, if, if other, you know, doesn't open up and become real for us, then nothing's really happening in a real sense from the work. Because if there's not that opening and, you know, recognition of the, the, the spirituality or the genius or the uniqueness of the sacredness of every other living being, and that's not just the human. Uh, for all life, this reverence for all life, uh, I think we've missed something very important in, uh, you know, what the work is striving for. So uh, that path of heart is, uh, I don't think I've ever felt it as strong uh, as I have with the Gurdjieff work because 
in the Catholic sense, you know, it was always just one centered. It was just belief and acceptance or, you know, as Spencey talks about, it could be the way of the fakir where it's just, you know, through your body or it could be the way of the monk through the, through the heart or it could be the way of the yogi through the mind. Uh, the work, you know, is incredibly difficult in the sense that it demands, you know, work on all three simultaneously. So a moment of presence, a moment of real awareness. And I would say after, you know, close to 40 years of being in the work, there are times when I really grasp the, you know, the incredible richness and depth of that truth. And that's after years and years of, uh, trying to work at and, and stumbling and, you know, never really getting it right which isn't the point anyways, but uh, you don't come into it easily. You know, as Christ says in the Gospels, easier uh, for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And that work of trying to get rid of all of, uh, all of the stuff in me that isn't useful on this journey is, is you know, I, I think pretty hard work. And there's, for me, the interest in education because I think, much of the Gurdjieffian work, if you think about it, it's Beelzebub's education of his grandson. Yeah. Well, I think there's a couple of things in that that I uh, want to reflect on. And one is the idea of the um, preparatory work. You know, we, you know, certain Asian traditions have, uh, whether it's music, painting, or archery, there's often a uh, the kind of the lore of a long period of preparatory work where the student really has to drop into the context that the art is about. And I sometimes think of the, the preparatory work in the fourth way is, you know, the, the rigorous self-observation and the, the coming to see the psychological nature. And, and there can be a certain ruthlessness in that as one is starting to discriminate or discern what is false and what is uh, authentic in oneself. But once that preparatory work reaches a certain point, I think the, uh, the tradition opens up into this richly uh, uh, emotional, awe-filled uh, uh, focus. And where, as, as is said in the work, the higher truly does begin to uh, penetrate with the lower. And that's off. I don't think that's appreciated enough because I think people, you know, tend, you know, first of all, there tends to be a little patience for lots of people in um, modern spiritual communities for preparatory work. Uh, people want the answer immediately, but, right. but that which grasps after the answer can't truly appreciate the answer unless something else has shifted. Yep. And there's the power in the work, you know, with work with others. Because, you know, there is work on yourself, but then really the gift of working with others and that being open and acceptance uh, of others and their acceptance of you in a real group, uh, you know, there's quite a, a profound gift that can, you know, be there. So like in the cafe, as I think somebody had articulated, maybe it was you, Rob, who mentioned it today, just this being able to be quite critical and then, you know, bringing in the humor, there's a freedom and there's an openness 
to exchange and you know you let your guards down and you know oftentimes we expose ourselves and, and we have you know other who can hold up a mirror for us at times and uh, without that uh, without other without other human beings to interact with uh, you know we're lost so there's another opening into the heart as well when you know it's pretty hard to you know, there's a gift that everyone brings, a particular insider genius. And when you're in a group of people working, all, you know, with the same intent and, and with that kind of an integrity, it's, it's really, uh, you know, quite a gift. And if you go back to some of the, you know, Catholic catechism records, you know, it was like, well, who, who you know, the Baltimore catechism, who made me? Well, God made me. You know, here's the here's the question and here's the road answer that you come back with, because that's the nature of belief. And, uh, you know, you kind of leave that behind and you open up to the fact that, you know, it is a mystery and uh, the mystery is all around us. The 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 spiritual, the highest part of the spiritual is not in some far off land. It, it's maybe right in, in front of me in the person that's addressing me. Uh, that could be my ultimate awakening. Hmm. Got it. To it. We need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we present a conversation pre-recorded on August 3rd, 2019 with Zeke Badger, a longtime fourth-way practitioner, a writer, blogger, and founding member of the Seekers Cafe, and a career educator whose work focuses upon developing and implementing nature-based educational experiences that inspire and challenge individuals towards personal health and a healthy relationship with the natural world through the use of adventure education, long-distance walking adventures, and rite-of-passage endeavors. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. In this hour, we continue our pre-recorded Zoom conversation with Zeke Badger, a longtime fourth-way practitioner, a writer, blogger, and founding member of the Seekers Cafe, and a career educator whose work focuses upon developing and implementing nature-based educational experiences that inspire and challenge individuals towards personal health and a healthy relationship with the natural world through the use of adventure education, long-distance walking adventures, and rite-of-passage endeavors. Well, um, so I want to invite you at this point to... Um, uh, you, you've You've referenced several times your career in education and um, because I've seen your uh, CV uh, etc I have a sense I have a sense of that but our listeners don't yet have a sense of that so and and it's clear to me that that you are have used your experience in the Gurdjieff work as well as this innate sense of reverence that you have um, experienced throughout your life. 
as a teacher. So, so tell us, give us a sense of the trajectory that took you into education, what that meant, what forms of uh, teaching uh, do you and have you done, um, et cetera. Just set the stage for that, if you will. Uh, well, when I came back and I became part of Keith's group, as I mentioned, you know, we were studying all sorts of stuff relative to laws and science. And, you know, it was just a gift to have Keith Buzzle as a teacher because there was uh, little to no ego in the man. And he was just not only a brilliant teacher, uh, but just, you know, gave all the time. So I think those, those explorations into science, uh, I remember at one point thinking, you know, Gurdjieff said, well, you need a piece of paper. If you go back to some of Knott's uh, encounters with Gurdjieff, Gurdjieff would tell everyone, well, you need, you got to be able to give something bad. You got to do something in this world. You got to have the piece of paper. So I eventually thought, well, I got to go back to college. I didn't know why, I, what I wanted to be or what I would think of doing. But I remember sitting down and saying, okay, I'm just going to look through the course catalog at the college nearest to where I live so I could still be part of Keith's group. And I'm going to pick whatever major uh, is offering as mandatory subjects all the things that I'm studying now. So I had, here's all the things we're studying. And so here it is, and I'm going to go through the book. And sure enough, what came up uh, as being the major that offered most of those things I'd already been studying was uh, a bachelor's of science in environmental biology. Hmm. So I went back to college, uh, you know, intent just to get a degree. But it, when I got there, then I found that it also resonated with my love of the, the outdoors and this question of, you know, the environmental crisis. Certainly nothing uh, as significant or perceived as significant as it is today back in the, uh, uh, you know, the early 80s was when I went back to uh, school. Uh, but I went back and that I got my undergraduate degree. I, I met my wife there. And so then all of a sudden we're in the 80s and we're in the era of Ronald Reagan and anything and everything in the environmental world was being shot to hell. So I recognized, well, now having started with a family, I, I had to find something to do for work. And I wasn't going to, you know, there's nothing in the environmental field. So I got dual certification as an educator and, you know, figured, well, everybody can, uh, everybody can teach. But there was likewise from the work, this question of faulty education. Mm -hmm. uh, Oskiano, uh, you know, Gurdjieff or Beelzebub is constantly referring to the fact that we're in the dilemma that we are in because of our Oskiano, our education is off. So that perked my interest more and more, and the idea of teaching became more uh, of an interest. And I eventually went on for my graduate degree and really uh, settled on were recognized that I could teach uh, and, you know, answer the material question while likewise following my passion for, you know, bringing the gospel of nature alive to young men and women who were becoming further and further estranged from 
you know, the world of, of nature with the whole rise of technology and smartphones and, uh, you know, the, the total disconnect that's been part of our story for a number of years now with, uh, you know, the virtual kind of reality that kids are living into. But the teaching became a way for me to likewise address this issue of the rite of passage for youth, recognizing uh, very early in my teaching career that one of the things that was missing from any kind of curricula or offering that was in the schools was anything remotely similar to the rite of passage experience. It was just academic, uh, you know, you know, if we followed, uh, you know, I, I got, I was lucky that I, and Keith Buzzle introduced me to Waldorf education as a more holistic mm -hmm. or normalized kind of educational experience. And I, even though I then taught in the Waldorf schools for 25 years, teaching high school science, uh, there was still something that I recognized that was still missing there in terms of this rite of passage experience that provided a key, you could say a skoken. So in the, in the, in, in the work term, the, you know, a skoken is the experience. We don't have these experiences. They're always just either an idea or feeling or some kind of sensation that I might have that feels great uh, or is entertaining for a while, but then never has any kind of profound change in my being. And recognizing that and through my reading and interest in, uh, you know, indigenous cultures in particularly who has a greater sense of the concepts of place and self, uh, that rite of passage experience became quite, uh, you know, a deeper part of what I came to offer through my teaching. And I developed a program where I got kids out there and offered kind of ritual experiences that would help them not to put thoughts into their mind, but it was kind of like, uh, you know, the idea of, you know, a farmer doesn't grow food. The farmer doesn't grow crops. The soil grows crops. The farmer's job is to till the soil and serve the soil and make it, you know, healthy. And if a seed falls into that soil, if it's well tilled and manured and, uh, you know, rich, then the seed will grow without any further work from us. So for me, it was really teaching became and the educational experience of taking kids out into nature was really more of a recognition that I could, you know, like Socrates said, I, I can't teach anybody anything. I can merely teach them how to think. And I would hope that, you know, through my experiences that I uh, crafted for them, if a seed was going to fall into the soil, uh, it would be great. So bringing in ideas of throw or other kinds of, uh, uh, you know, concepts in the teaching uh, was all part and parcel of, of how education became an important component for my continued search, which answered uh you know, the, the need for searching more and more of my inner world, but also recognizing that you have to give more and more. Uh, the more you give away, the more you're going to receive. And uh, so teaching became a great uh, discipline, I think, for that. I remember, you know, when I when I left for because uh, I, I finally had to leave the group for a number of years because I. Uh, my job required it, and there was a reluctance. I gave up some pretty high-profile jobs 
just to remain uh, close to the work at the university level. But eventually, when my own children's education came into uh, play, that's when I, I, I sought out the Waldorf education. And I remember asking Keith, uh, you know, about these questions, and he said, there's only really three things that are important in this world. He said, there's your, your obligation to your community, there's the obligation to your family, and then third, and lastly, when you've been a good ho householder and you've satisfied those first two, then is the question of yourself. You know, what is, uh, how do you serve oneself? So for me, the teaching and working in a Waldorf school eventually answered all of those questions. I was able to give something back to my community, which I thought was vital uh, in terms of the educational uh, component. And I was also able to serve my family because my kids all received the Wald Waldorf education. Uh, but through doing those, I was also really, you know, serving myself in the sense that there were, there's this soul journey that I'm on and it gave me the opportunity to keep exploring you know, the many facets of uh, work involved in, in that sphere. So this is wonderful. Uh, uh, what, I, what I really like about what you've just been saying is the organic nature of how your career as an educator um, was a form of service, as, as you say, to these three levels, um, and that um, it wasn't a sidetrack from your from your work, um, capital W work, um, right. Gurdjieff work, um, and and it also emerged. It sounds like, I mean, when you describe the the way that you uh, decided to go back and get as you say, Gurdjieff's phrase, a piece of paper, um, the degree, and then things sort of organically proceeded in a way where the universe was essentially offering you a, uh, uh, various paths to, to enact your work in the world. Um, and I'm, uh, um, uh, to me, this is, this is a hallmark of, of, uh, the development of maturity in practice. Yeah, and practice. And I want to, and I wonder if you have any further observations about how, about that, how, how you might have seen that um, develop or start to develop in some, perhaps even in some of your own students. Yeah, well, I think uh, there was a great exercise I remember being exposed to, uh, to Keith. Uh, early on in the work, and it, it, you might have come across it. It's called the thinking exercise. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's a, a method of questioning that allows you to go deeper and deeper into uh, the nature of a question about, you know, person, place, or thing. Whatever it is that you've okay. got a, uh, a question or a curiosity about, there was this particular methodology, its history, what it's good for, what it's, uh, you know, mm, okay. a whole series of questions that you would go into. But it, for me, it was always this capacity to, to what I call long thinking. And in my teaching, I would often take kids out into what I call long walks, mm -hmm. uh, which was kind of like in, if you think about rites of passages and the, uh, the Australian Aborigine, for instance, doing a walkabout. It always came 
to me, through my own walking and my years of just moving, that the walking itself, the rhythm of walking generated a rhythm of thinking. And over time, that became uh, really confirmed by all sorts of people, whether it was Nietzsche, uh, Wordsworth, Thoreau. He, I think one of his most transcendental essays was on walking, is on walking. Uh, Dickens, all of these people who had, uh, uh, you know, found the time to really ponder deeply. So that thinking exercise led eventually to what I came to recognize in the work that, uh, and I, I think it's with, uh, I, it might have been in Hartman's book, Our Life with Gurdjieff, but there's a particular reference to uh, Gurdjieff saying a good 70% of our time should be in pondering. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and in terms of, you know, whether it's to meditate or have this quiet time uh, where you can really ponder or follow a line of thinking and, uh, and thought to its core. Uh, is, is a profound part of, you know, the disciplines that we, that we don't get in school. Mm -hmm. You know, it, there's very little time in, uh, you know, doing that kind of deep thinking for ourselves. But that was, you know, something that was coming from the work. And I realized with my own spiritual search and how to bring the outer world and the inner world into some kind of relationship to each other. So it wasn't just you have your spirituality and then you have your outside world where you can do whatever you want because it really doesn't matter. You know, I can be a good Christian one day and, and turn around and blow up the world, you know, tomorrow because the two aren't, you know, connected. I really, you know, that time, whether it was, you know, even like with Walden, Thoreau had his time to sit and ponder and do some deep thinking. Uh, I brought into my teaching, uh, you know, all sorts of time, if you will, to let adolescents do their own thinking. And I came to see for myself over time that, you know, there is a profound difference between schooling and education. Mm. Uh, education comes from the Latin educare to draw out not, you know, to pound in a whole bunch of information or, or, or nonsense. But when did, you know, when do youth, for instance, have the time to think their own, their own thoughts? Many of the textbooks that you find in high schools or colleges not only give you the questions to ask, but you go to the end of the book and they tell you what the right answers to those questions are. And that freedom to really ponder deeply and do those long kinds of uh, soul searches were uh, quite important. So disciplining students early on uh, to do that kind of thinking and, you know, cultivating some exercises, some curriculum ideas or experiences that would let them do that uh, was always part of the, the task that I, I held for myself. Did, did you... Did you find that the Waldorf uh, tradition had space for that, or was this something that you found that you really had to add in or add on top of that? No, I had to add it in, and it was quite a fight uh, to come up against, uh, you know, a canon of thought. Mm -hmm. uh, and eventually, after 25 years, I left Waldorf education for the same reason why I entered it. 
was just to explore, you know, the, the deeper meanings of what it means to educate. But no, it was quite hard because I think there was much in the early philosophy of Steiner and in the original educational impulse of Waldorf education uh, to address that kind of training that would bring one to the point of doing that kind of thinking for oneself. The whole philosophy of freedom, as Rudolf Steiner speaks to it in one of his four cardinal books, uh, at some point, I found that that was no longer possible, even within the Waldorf schools. That's, that's a really interesting point. I mean, it's, it's a, um, uh, I mean, it is, Gurdjieff speaks about how institutions uh, necessarily follow a particular octave, either up or down, and yeah. that an original creative note doesn't necessarily continue to ascend upwards if there isn't a intentional energy injected in periodically to kind of keep things moving. So, exactly. it, so it sounds like from what you're saying that the influences of the modern Western education potentially even started to maybe impact the Waldorf trajectory. It did. I mean, it became institutional, as you so uh, aptly put it. And, you know, and as soon as anything, whether it's a spiritual tradition like Christianity, something, the wildness of it, it really departs when you try and cage it, when you institutionalize it. And, you know, schools have become that. And, uh, and fearfully, I think uh, Waldorf schools are falling into the same uh you know, they're appealing to people who want to, you know, can afford it. The high school that I taught at, uh, currently the tuition for a full, uh, paying boarding student is fifty-two, fifty-three $53,000. Uh, for a day student, it's $37,000. Wow. And so there are people who are obviously looking for something in education that's more normal and doesn't for you know, portray or present the same kind of fearful atmosphere that perhaps the public schools may. And they, they're capable of pain, and yet the, the, the aim is to get these people who are paying this money, the ultimate <clears throat> aim is that they want their kids to get into the best colleges, to get the best <laughs> jobs. And the whole purpose for education, which has got nothing to do with, as Thoreau said, to do anything merely for money is to have been truly idle or worse. It's not designed for one to think their own thoughts and discover their own genius, whatever that may be. The real freedom of education, as I understood Steiner's take on it, was to, that has to be open and sacrosanct to the individual. I, I can't tell another person what they need to think, do, or say. And uh, I think for myself, it was becoming a little bit dog, too, too dogmatic because they were trying to keep up with paying the bills. Yeah. Uh, Which is understandable. I mean, yeah. but, but, it's, but as you say, it has consequences. Yeah. So, so um, I'm, I want to invite you to talk a little bit about, you said you left, you know, um, the Waldorf education and are doing something different, have been doing something different subsequently. Um, does that still involve this, uh, a kind of education 
in a kind of classroom setting? Um, are you also doing this rite of passage work? Talk about that, if you will. Yeah, I think I still uh, I still try and like I just this past week, I, I took a young group of uh, young men out into the woods for a week to work with the primitive skills. And I, you know, through high school, I had a program that was called the naturalist program. And basically it taught kids how to go out into the woods and survive with nothing but, you know, a knife on their belt. So they learned how to make cordage, how to make shelters, how to find food, how to, you know, how to hunt, uh, how to, you know, nature was our home and she gives us everything. And if we learn how to work with it, you know, we enter into this whole other different kind of relationship with it. So I still do some young stuff with younger kids, more like along the Boy Scouts used to do. Mm -hmm. It's like setting the stage for getting them comfortable being outside. But where I've retired now from active full-time teaching, I when I finally got to the point where I recognized that I was going to leave Waldorf for the same reason why I entered it, Interestingly enough, though, I, I am now a teacher, and I only teach part-time, but I do online teaching. Hmm. And in part, it was, in large measure, it was realizing that today, kids are spending an extraordinary amount of time online in, in looking at a screen. Mm -hmm. I think the latest Nielsen ratings put it at somewhere between nine to 11 hours of screen time per day, uh. which is kind of scary in some ways, but here's, you know, a technology that's not going to go away and it's not, you know, it's not like we can do battle with this thing and, and, and get rid of it. That's not the point. So for me, it was like, I'm going to go really into the belly of the beast here and really explore what this online education may have to offer. And uh, so it's been an intriguing one. And this is what really led to my interest in joining the Seekers Cafe, mm. because it was a similar thing of here's uh, an incredible medium. Uh, and as, a, as opposed to maybe the, the tail wagging the dog, that if the dog could really, you know, wag the tail, you know, there's nothing evil per se in this technology. In fact, it may be something uh, that can connect us in a profound way that none of us has really uh, realized or experienced at this point. That could lead to these kind of greater connections and understandings. Uh, that took me eight years of traveling around the world to try and, you know, discover. Now, there's a, you know, a certain limit to what the online stuff can do, but so far in the four years now where I've been teaching online, I teach for uh, the only online public uh, charter high school in New Hampshire, it's called VLAX, the Virtual Learning uh, Academy Charter School. Hmm. And it's totally free. Kids can sign online. And what this VLAX is likewise doing, which I think is intriguing, is they're offering learning through experiences. So here's the, uh, you know, the uh, Skokin that uh, all of Oskiano or all ed education is based upon these experiences that we need to have. And here they are offering, it's possible for students to get all of their high school credits, high school credits 
by never being in a bricks and mortar high school, but being out in life, being out in the community, learning through experiences where they could work with others, they could work with technicians, they could work with nurses, they could work with mechanics, mm. uh, they could travel. And to me, it's <clears throat> utilizing this technology, I think, in a way in which opens kids up to enrichment, not to lead them into this personal virtual world where they just disappear in some kind of uh, maze of make-believe, but it could be the very thing that allows them to interconnect and interface with people in their communities and also in the world. Yeah. So for me, it's been, I'm still learning and just, uh, it was, it was intriguing because the, the as educators who started this educational effort were also, uh, the same educators who started a local high school, uh, Sauhegan House High School, which was at the time, if you've ever familiar with, uh, uh, the coalition of essential schools that, uh, came out of, uh, uh, a series of books that were written called Horace's Compromise. They were uh, some educational studies that had happened in the 1980s about the American secondary school system. And basically, you know, the results of those studies were saying that you're just re all of education is reinventing the wheel. We should just throw it out. So this school, Sauhegan, uh, took that to heart and tried to, they were one of the first schools to enter into this coalition of essential schools, which was really an attempt to relook at remaking, uh, the school experience. And when it just became the same question again, it started out great, but, you know, it just came back upon itself and became the very opposite of what it was intentioned mm. to be. They break, broke off and they started this uh, VLAC school. So for me, having known some of those educators, uh, it was an intriguing further connection to follow. And that's what I've been doing for now for going on my fifth year. Hmm. Oh, that, 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 that sounds very interesting. And as you mentioned, the, the Seekers Cafe project is uh, its own kind of experiment in that direction. So Absolutely. But... Um, one of the conversations that I know you've been engaged in on the Seekers Cafe is this question of education. And I'm sort of re reflecting on, you know, I'm familiar that in the uh, Krishnamurti work, particularly in India, there's uh, Krishnamurti schools. Yeah. And, and you've had experience with the Waldorf schools. I think you posted some information about the Dalai Lama's uh, project. Uh, uh, the curriculum. Yeah. yeah. The, and, so you must have some idea at this point of what uh, a real curriculum looks like for a student. And, you know, like what you've, you've talked about the experiment, experiential dimension. Does that translate to everything? I mean, how do you, I, I think our models are so grounded in the traditional public education system that, that we received in our generation. Does it, is it a completely different uh, model of proper education for youth now, or, or is there something that's a combination? The Dalai Lama's uh, model that he's projecting there? I would say uh, I'm more asking you to uh, sort of uh, what you know of, if you take all of these different models together in your own experience, uh, yeah. how would you articulate a model that uh, seems to cover 
the ground of all these points that you have direct experience in and what you have come to understand is uh, a necessary function in educating a young young person? Well, I think, you know, the Dalai Lama's C curriculum there is uh, is an interesting one, and I think it's developmental, so time will tell where that one goes. Uh, you know, two things have stru- struck me as an educator is that, one, the history of secondary uh, education in this country, and it probably consists you know, or is consistent with what we find worldwide, very few of us know the history of compulsory educational uh, movements. And, you know, the whole objective of compulsory modern day education, which evolved out of the factory system or during the era of, uh, you know, the, uh, the factory, was in early, a, early 19th century mostly right isn't would, would that be right yeah i think compulsory modern education started in massachusetts in 1850 right. and pe- people resisted it they fought it but the state said you are legally obligated to send your child to the school so you could follow something like uh, schooling the world a great documentary on uh uh, you know, what education has become, institutionalist education. Uh, great piece of history right there. Uh, John Gatto's Underground History of American Education is a, a chilling read. But really, the, the aim was uh, to produce workers who could, you know, replace other workers on the factory line and were capable of the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic, but didn't ask questions. And that whole model of production, industrial production, was taken from the Russian military, Prussian military model where, you know, you could just, it was such an efficient machine, they, re, they produced or reproduced soldiers who could take the place on the line mm-hmm. without, with obedience to, you know, the command. That's interesting. I didn't know that, that link. It's a profound, most people don't. And our modern industrial model of education comes from that. Uh, that's part of its history. So the thinking exercise of how did this come into the world, uh, it, it's not to teach freedom. It's not to teach people to think freely on their own or to do their own thinking. It's really to become compliant and how to be, uh, to follow orders, if you will. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not to think freely by any means uh, at all. Well, to be cogs in that industrial machine that you were discussing. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, so I think realizing that, you know, even the best of educational intention, when you fall into an institutional setting and it becomes, uh, you know, 90% of your time goes into serving the machine as opposed to serving the student that that machine is supposed to be. Uh, geared around, uh, something was absolutely uh, off uh, in the nature of it. So I think, you know, some of these uh, attempts to address education, to me, if I was to look at it and think about it and uh, and crafted it, you know, there's an old age old wisdom saying that it takes a community to raise a child. Mm-hmm. And I think in many ways that that is true and that community has now become a much larger world. But as opposed to boxing 
uh, people in and sitting them down in seats all day where they're talked to and they're listening to bells and whistles go off to move from one discipline to another where we can shut things off quickly and then three minutes later after passing down the hallway, we open up to a whole other discipline of thought. So we go from science to English to math, the social studies, you know, basket weaving, whatever it is. I mean, kids, uh, Ted Sizer, who started the Coalition of Essential Schools and wrote the book Horace's Compromise, he said, you know, the inevitable result of that kind of educational uh, model all day is that kids wind up with a case of vertigo. Uh, it's just so much uh, information being thrown at you. You have very little time to digest it. And for me, I'm, I'm quite convinced it became an, a much easier path for kids to turn on the screen or to escape by doing the drugs. Mm-hmm. And I think the whole, the whole escaping from the insanity of our situation, uh, you know, going into the dark avenues of, uh, of possibilities that give us some kind of hope, uh, I think is problematic. But some of these educational efforts that are really looking more into the communities, looking how to reach out to others, not to box yourself in and to be with a specific age group of kids all day, all 13-year-olds or 14-year-olds and ever interacting with others, uh, never un- interacting with younger people or your older people, uh, that kind of cross-generational uh, pot of, of possibilities where learning occurs, you know, elders can be re- revered. But at the same time, you know, I can look up to those who are feeding me, but I also have to look down into, you know, the younger ages as to how I can be role models or serving them. So I think there are some emerging movements in education in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, Dennis Litke, uh, the schools with no walls, the big picture schools. Hmm. These are educational efforts that are saying rather than incurring all of these costs to build this institution that generates a kind of life on its own that's meaningless because it's thoughtless, uh, let's not spend all that money and trying to recreate all of these wheels out there. Let's send kids out into the communities where people are doing great work uh, and have them learn in the old fashioned kind of uh, apprenticeship model and or experiential model of like, I am part of this community. I am part of this place called home. And I think that can differ to kind of uh, franchise it and say, this is the way it has to be everywhere you know, in Taos, you know, New Mexico, that kind of an environment or community is going to be totally different from what it is in the Monadnocks of New Hampshire here, because we live in different places and there's a richness to the land, there's a richness to the history and the culture of this place uh, that can be a profound medium through which kids can be opened up and, and truly educated where something of their personal identity can, can emerge out. Well, this is this is very uh, uh, inspiring to me because um, I didn't have much of a career in in education. I mean, I went to a a, 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 a university that styles itself as elite, and and taught for uh, a, a while briefly there. And what I saw, um, except for small um, seminar types environments completely i was completely uninterested in 
in teaching in that in that kind of context. That's for sure. Um, and I've I've had an ongoing contemplation on how I would replace that. So some of the so a lot of the features that you've just pointed to, for instance, the uh, the age grade cadres um, is just a, a stultifying um, huge mistake that arose as you as you're pointing to specifically to uh, create the cheapest way to um, educate more cogs for the machine. Yeah. And that's not, and that in, and, and as we move forward in the 21st century, that's clearly less and less relevant to people, not just in terms of what kinds of careers they might ultimately uh, go into, but socially uh, stultifying, um, even worse than stultifying. So, so this is this is wonderful to hear, and I'm and I'm glad uh, to hear this. The question that's coming up for me is about um, the people who are engaging in this sort of thing. In addition to yourself, you you've spoken about particular um, experiments, particular uh, directions. I'm wondering if the folks doing this kind of work have a similar sort of I mean, I guess you could call your background eclectic. I think that's a that might be a fair word to use, and and is also, I mean, clearly your teaching career has been suffused with what you were calling earlier a sense of the sacred. And I'm wondering if the other folks engaging in these educational experiments and seeking to find different ways uh, to create meaningful education also have a similar kind of uh, background in many cases, if not most cases? Yeah, it's a good question. It would be an interesting, uh, I think it would be an interesting experiment to pursue to see what leads, what kind of experiences for people lead to being more and more open. And I think, you know, just like on the political sphere right now, I mean, you know, if you listen to just the news that's out there on a daily basis, you'd probably wind up being quite pessimistic about, you know. I, I would say despair is not going too far. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but that's just listening to, you know, as Gurdjieff would say, the power possessors. You're, mm -hmm. We're hearing a stream of information. But I actually, having worked with youth, I, I find that there's great hope in youth. Uh, they're more open. Uh, Gone is the day where, you know, like I would spend all of my days with the kids who were the same age as me, uh, you know, and I'd never mix with others. So I couldn't mm -hmm. tolerate anybody who was different from me or thought different or was a different age or whatever. I think all of that is going by the boards today and it's all opening up because education is failing, religions are failing, politics are failing. But aside from all of that nonsense that's going on out there, what we don't hear in the news, but when we do talk with other people, there are profoundly deep questions of meaning uh, and values being explored and an incredible openness to other. And I think that's the hallmark of the Gurdjieff work uh, that I think in many ways is manifesting, uh, you know, and we don't hear about it. You know, I think uh, two weeks ago or uh, last week, somebody was saying, uh, you know, there isn't any kind of uh, uh, 
outward manifestation of the Gurdjieff work that's left this imprint. Who was it that we were conversing with? Oh, uh, it's, uh, Russell. Russell? Yeah, Russell Schreiber was saying that 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 the Gurdjieff work isn't, you know, building uh, uh, bridges in uh, you know flood-ridden areas in uh, Puerto Rico or you know something right. like that. See, I, I would hold the opposite view. I think that the that invisible kind of uh, non-identification with the Gurdjieff work or Gurdjieff, where I'm a Gurdjieffian. Uh, or I'm following a particular discipline, I think there's a lot of work going out or going on out there that gives me great hope where people are opening up to others, their thinking is opening up, their souls are opening up, and people are exploring new ways of, you know, how to go about, uh, you know, celebrating this journey we call life together. And I, I see more, like listening to some of your podcasts or look, listening to other shows or other kinds of mediums where you can pick up the news, yeah. which comes from the north, the east, the west, and the south. You know, these were their, Odin would send his two <laughs> ravens out from his shoulder every morning to go out and, and connect with what's going on in the world. This was the news, and I think people are realizing that what's being fed to us is you know, just an unhealthy diet, and I'm quite optimistic about the future. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, true today with the media technology, particularly podcasts and video casts and things like that and video connection that we are seeing a, an explosion of things like podcasts um, of any sort, you know, where there's just this diversity of conversation that's available and yep. like anything, you know, it's, it's becoming noisy, you know, there's a, uh, uh, and, and how something is curated is, um, and how something how how people find in that noise things that are meaningful is going to be a challenge. But at the same time, I find I'm able to uh, listen to uh, different podcasts, uh, hear conversations with people, and realize that there are lots of people out there who are grappling with these questions in a meaningful way. It's not all you know. Uh, uh, sort of media-dominated news cycles and politicians who are sort of pulling the strings of manipulation on uh, people's reactivity. There, there's, there does seem to be a, a, a larger wave. How, how that will cohere or, or come together or if it will is an interesting question because there's obviously global questions of import like our uh, situation with our uh, climate that are probably going to drive greater, <laughs> it drives the need for greater coherence. But, it is a different world now and it's not all bad and it's not all good. And, and that's, that's the, that's the fascinating challenge that, you know, does this new media of create greater connectivity? Well, I think it, it is. And that's my, you know, interest in exploring it because it's become such a prevalent part of our lives. So what you guys are doing, what others are doing, I think it does open us up to, you know, greater optimism and greater possibilities. Whenever you can reach out and see others, yeah. and, you know, connect with others, I mean, something I think good is going to happen. There might be friction, you know, but that's part of, uh, you know, anything that comes together in the, you know, subatomic world. I mean, there's, uh, you know, bondings and, you know, all sorts of uh, energy exchanges that are going on, but that's all part of a process. And I think more and more people are just 
open to listening to something different than what's the you know standard fare of news and you know so I always turn to the youth because I think they're coming up with some great questions and it gives me great uh, optimism for the future and that's been one of the blessings I think that's come from being an educator uh, you know we give but what you get back is just this incredible sense of optimism and hope for the future which is really what uh, you know, education should be about anyways. Well, the, uh, you're, you're stimulating in me the idea that um, part of Gurdjieff's critique of mechanical, the mechanical nature of humanity, um, in part, I'm not saying in whole, but in part may have been him addressing the European and American society that he encountered in the early 20th century and not uh, unrelated aspects of the edu educational processes that you've just been uh, describing and, and critiquing. And, and one of the misunderstandings, it seems to me, of, of what Gurdjieff had to say is when people focus on the, the doom and gloom side of, oh, we're all mechanical, there's nothing we can do, etc., and forget that Gurdjieff made this critique for a reason, yeah. he wasn't. He wasn't. He wasn't just. He wasn't just uh, saying it to make himself right and all the all these hopeless European and Americans, Europeans and Americans wrong. He was doing it for a reason, to to uh, create a context where the kind of creativity you're pointing to could emerge. I think you're right. I mean, the you know reading the tales, you know his. Uh, on America, his chapter on America and uh, making money on offshore, uh, you know, barges. I mean, he's metaphorically speaking, I think, to something totally different from, uh, you know, making alcohol or higher spirits or making money. But this dollar business is about more of this uh, spiritual capital uh, that's possible to be made. And I think addressing that to America, which is the Western thought, you know, we used to be a lot more normal, if you will. And I think, uh, uh, yeah, the, the teaching there for me has got a profoundly practical element to it, which is uh, hopefully what lives on into the future and, and you know, serves many people uh, uh, still to come. Well, we are getting uh, close to the end of our time here. So uh, I want to just give you some space to talk about if there's any you know, public work like websites that you have that uh, uh, listeners might want to find out more about your teaching work. Um, this is a good time for that. We'll also put a link to the Seekers Cafe um, uh, on the podcast just as that as that project grows, people will uh, have access to uh, other material you might post up there. Yeah, I think there's, uh, I mean, I follow a lot of different uh, uh you know, for news, world news, I like the Young Turks and I mm -hmm. like democracy now. For educational uh, elements, I think there's just, uh, uh, you know, I mentioned Dennis Litke's work, uh, the big picture schools. Uh, I think there's some really interesting connections there as well. Uh, how do, you spell, always, how do you spell Licky, by, by the way? Uh, L-I-T-K-Y. Ah. 
Dennis Lickey. Yeah, he was uh, uh, quite an interesting uh, character, but he was a principal in the school that I first worked at when I graduated from graduate school. Hmm. And uh, but he's a uh, current uh, er- educator, and I think still down in the Brown University area there in uh, in uh, Rhode Island. So good things there. Uh, I think in the charter school movement. I mean, I look in uh, Finland. There's some great educational models happening there, uh, where they're giving up. Uh, subject matter is a unique, you know, separate disciplines. They're not mm. teaching history, mathematics, science anymore. They're, they're picking up on a thematic approach where they take a theme and then all of those disciplines uh, are brought in to serve those uh, particular uh, themes. And, and people are experimenting. So the Dalai Lama's uh, initiative to open up, uh, you know, the curriculum or looking at new ways of educating people, there's a lot out there. But I would encourage folks to think new thoughts as well, because uh, what is needed probably more than anything are not what, you know, it's been happening in the past, but those things that need to happen in the future. And, you know, the more we can be open to others and accept and listen to what they have to share with us, I think uh, the closer we'll get to not finding an answer, but finding the direction that we need to uh, pursue in order to uh, celebrate the journey. Well, that's, that's about getting anywhere. Exactly. Well, that's a perfect note to end on. Yes, so. that was, that's uh, um, uh, the occasion for us to yeah. thank you for this uh, delightful conversation we've had today with you. Thank you, guys. I, I, I really appreciate the work that you're doing, and I appreciate the opportunity to speak. So keep doing what you're doing. I think it's fantastic, and uh, we'll see you next week on the Seekers Cafe. All right. All right. All right. All right, gentlemen, you be good. Bye-bye. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we've been playing a Zoom conversation recorded on August 3rd, 2019 with Zeke Badger, a longtime fourth-way practitioner, a writer, blogger, and founding member of the Seekers Cafe, and a career educator whose work focuses upon developing and implementing nature-based educational experiences that inspire and challenge individuals towards personal health and a healthy relationship with the natural world through the use of adventure education, long-distance walking adventures, and rite-of-passage endeavors. In two weeks on The Mystical Positivist, Rob and I will speak with Nick Egan, Ph.D. Nick is an award-winning leader and executive coach who utilizes his deep understanding of positive psychology and Buddhist philosophy to encourage personal and organizational growth. In addition to coaching, he has taught meditation techniques for more than a decade and regularly leads expeditions to destinations, including Bhutan, Mongolia, Nepal, Thailand, and Tibet. Nick holds a BA in psychology, an MA in comparative religion, and a PhD in Buddhist philosophy. He is the author of the newly released book, Shift, The Art of Transforming Limitations. In Shift, Nick shows how to improve organizational leadership in personal and professional development by dismantling mental limitations and reclaiming freedom and flexibility. Tune in for that show on Saturday, August 24th from 4 to 6 p.m. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com Join us again next Saturday.